it turns out that because my orientation towards all of these things is fundamentally about human beings finding ways to connect with each other that are safe and joyful, that if that's my fundamental, then almost all of these things, all, they speak to each other a lot in my mind, right? They're, they're all very much connected. Hello and welcome to Fuck Yeah, the podcast where we say fuck yeah to somatic practices. I'm here with my rosy, glowing friend of a co-host, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. You're calling out my sweaty nature in my hot house right now. <laughs> but I'll take it. I'm glowing. You I'm look glowing. blushed. <laughs> blushed. It's working for you from afar. Thank How you. are you? Do you have any fuck yeahs going on? I do have a fuck yeah. It's simple, but sometimes I think that the simple things are mm. more important than we give them credit for. Right. I have talked a lot about having moved recently, mm -hmm. and I've moved slightly outside of Los Angeles. Like, I am not technically in the city of L.A. anymore. And it's giving me a mild identity crisis, like nothing that I can't work through. But, you know, it's di it's really different when you don't live in the metropolitan area you've come accustomed to. It's a really different mentality. I have had moments of like we are a visibly gay households, you mm -hmm. know, and I'm like, OK, neighbors how do you feel mm -hmm. about that you know there's just those moments where you're like i don't know that i totally trust that i mean and granted there are people who are going to not like us wherever we go sure sure but i i guess i haven't been as concerned about it in los angeles as i'm noticing i'm like oh we live a little bit in the suburbs. This is interesting. And there is somebody. We have a big, long street. Like, we live kind of up the hill, right at the base of the foothills. There's this big, long street you drive up. Not a huge thoroughfare, but there's a fair amount of cars that go up it. Mm -hmm. There is this house. They have this huge banner like oh, a boy. professionally made banner tied between two huge trees, and it says, Believe Women. And I was like, right when we moved in, I was like, fuck, Ugh. yeah, like, I yes. love these people. And then the lawns, the handmade lawn sign, protect trans kids. Oh. And then the flip side says trans rights are human rights. Oh, and I was like, oh who are they? Have wow. you these people, I love them so much. And then the trans pride flag went up, yes. maybe in honor of pride. I don't know. Right. And I'm just like, oh, I have to, I have to write them a letter. I have yeah. to leave them a note and tell them. But, you know, it's like one of those things that you don't ever do, but you say you're going to do. Are you right? I fucking Did dropped you do the it? note off today. No, that's so sweet. Yeah. It's real simple. You, it's just saying, you know, we recently moved into the neighborhood. We're a gay family, and this just means a lot to us. So thank you. Oh, and did you leave your number? Are you going to have dinner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I left my information. I am somewhat adverse to meeting strangers, but I am trying to do the neighborly thing because they have made us feel welcome in our That is so sweet. I'm glad that you did that. I'm dying to know who's in there, who's in I know, that house. me too. Me too. <sighs> I know, maybe they're going to be besties. <laughs> right, you got to have them on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's really great. I'm glad you got yeah. like big old flag and allies and or queers out there and feminists, clearly. So yeah. that's fucking awesome. Welcome yeah, to the neighborhood. Is, I think it's it's also the nice thing sometimes about, I mean, as I've walked the neighborhoods, I do yeah. notice that people flag a little bit harder than maybe you would if you were in a, you know, a big metropolitan area. And I mean, oh, legitimately, you think there's more like, flags? There is there's just more of that, you know, there's like a lot of yard signs that are not to that extent, but right. that are expressing solidarity with a variety of groups. And that's I so great. Really appreciate it. 
That's really great. It means so much to, like you were saying, how much it meant to you guys. But to marginalized groups, it really means the world to show support. And, you know, I was in Long Beach last weekend and I was blown away by the rainbows there. I was like, holy shit, Long Beach represents. I even posted that video going across the bridge in Long Beach that was rainbow. I was like, fuck, dude. I wanted, if I was going to spend more time there, I would have like gone around all over town just taking pictures of all of the flags because it is dominating Long Beach right now. And it is so wonderful. I love it so much. Well, you know, we should probably have Kat from Wide Eyes Open Palms, Chef Kat, on the podcast because Mm -hmm. I do believe some of that is showing up in response to a lot of anti-LGBTQ attacks on uh, businesses, on people that have flared up in Long Beach. And so I think that it's always been a pretty, like there's some areas where you, it's like gay. (laughs) Uh, But there's, I think it's amped up right now because I think people are like, no, no. You do not get to bring your (laughs) gay hate here. Yeah, I know Pony had talked about their Long Beach location, had their windows broken and everything. So, yeah. But yeah, so... Whatever the reason, the the solidarity is really hardcore and awesome in in Long Beach. And it made me feel like up here in L.A. we need to represent more. <laughs> our, our guest today is Dr. Vanessa Ooh. Carlisle, who, among many things, is a writer. Their most recent novel is Take Mm. Me With You. It was published in 2021. They are a somatic practice Mm. facilitator. They teach self-defense workshops, and they are also a death doula. Vanessa is just an all-around smarty pants who I love being in conversation with. Their work is informed from 20 plus years of sex work experience as well. We happen to go to the same college. It's a very small school, so I'm always excited to meet people who went to read. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited to dive into this conversation because I, I feel like I have some ideas about how all of this work that they do connects. And certainly like they're querying a lot of these spaces. All of these things that they're doing are endlessly fascinating to me. Also the self-defense. Yeah. Queering self-defense is is such an important thing right now with all of the threats happening towards trans and drag performers. Let's dive in. Vanessa, welcome to Fuck Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're really excited for our conversation. We start everybody off with some rapid fire questions before we really dive in. Are you ready? Hit me. Okay. What is your favorite item of clothing to wear right now? Oh, I just got this hilarious orange sweater that has long loops of yarn hanging off of it that (laughs) seem like they're fringe, but they don't move like fringe. It's this the ugliest blanket sweater in the world. I adore it. It sounds very cozy. (laughs) Does it get snagged on everything? Oh, yeah. Like oh, doorknobs yeah. and everything would pull you backwards? Uh, I'm, I'm learning to navigate it. <laughs> nice. Who was your first celebrity crush? My first celebrity crush? Probably Bono. Whoa. Oh, what was it. it about Bono? Yes. I was in junior high when Octoon Baby came out and he wore eyeliner. Mm. And, oh. mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's all I it took. really wasn't exposed to a lot. I had a very sheltered childhood. So that should tell you something. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I loved his face. Yeah. I loved that album. He just, he seemed like he was so emotional. He was crying while he sang, kind of, you know? Yeah. I just loved, I don't know. I just loved him. And the pants. And the pants. Those <laughs> tight, tight pants. Yeah. I love that. Do you remember your first mode of masturbation and how old you were? I do. I was probably seven or eight and I had a little soap that felt really good to rub gently on my vulva. Wow. And I did it in the bathtub. A soap. Mm. 
Nice. It was just the right shape. It was just the right shape. It was a little teddy bear. Oh, <laughs> that little nose. So slightly ridged. <laughs> yeah, it had, had little curves. Yeah. Yeah, a little like pinpointed pressure. Oh, oh I love it. No one has ever asked me that before. Can you believe that? <laughs> Can you believe it? All these years. Do you remember what color the teddy was? Yeah, it was green. <laughs> had a little bow tie. Oh, the bow tie made all the difference. <laughs> Vanessa, you're a writer, you're a death doula. And you also teach self-defense and somatic techniques. It's all of these things with the body and the mind and the spirit. How did you discover that you needed a heavy dose of all of these different things in your life? I love this question because it has that sort of like, when did you know you were gay yeah. energy? Okay, yes. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, I can't answer it with like a moment of discovery. What I what I can do is say that I've always been very involved in things that, that made my body move, uh -huh. but I also wanted to be a good student. And so when I was younger, that was a tension. I didn't play sports. I danced. I did things that were non-competitive, but that kept my body moving. And I wanted to be creative and expressive. And so that was always part of um, me, you know, trying to become who I was, but I also loved to read. And I wanted to be a good student and I wanted to make my family proud with my grades and things like that. So I think that there wasn't really a discovery, but the first time I really had to articulate that I had a vibrant life of the mind and also a very vibrant physical life, the first time I had to articulate that was when I was applying for college and I had to come up with ways of thinking about myself that I hadn't really had to think about before. We went to the same school, actually, what? which is a really fun fact really? that Vanessa and I both went to Reed College. I did not know that. And that is awesome. <laughs> yep. Yep. It's a really small, especially at that time, too. I feel like it was one of those schools where if you know, you know. Yeah. And it was almost like the student body was more self-selective than the, I mean, not that the process of getting into the school wasn't just as complicated as any other school, but it was like, there's a certain type of person, particularly I think in that era of Reed that was attracted to that learning environment. And you guys weren't there at the same years though, right? No, no. I think we were just, we like, I think just missed each other. I started in 2000. I graduated in 2001. Wow. So we had one yeah. year of overlap. And that was the year where I was completely ensconced in my thesis project, right? Because the seniors at Reed all spend their final year writing a thesis project. And was your thesis related to this movement of the body and curiosity of the mind? <laughs> You're going to crack up. I was in the psych department and my thesis project was called Know Me and I'll Love You Back. Wow. Investigating the marriage shift in same-sex couples. Remember, this was 2001. Wow. And so at the time, we didn't have uh, marriage protections. And there were a lot of researchers who were interested in married people and how their relationships changed from dating to marriage. But they would never make clear predictions for gay, lesbian, queer people because <laughs> they couldn't. Right. So I reran a survey that had been done with straight couples. I reran it with gay and lesbian couples. And for an undergraduate thesis with a small sample size, I actually had enough power in the sample to get a significant result, which was really exciting to me at the time. And it suggested that making a long-term commitment, making a, a public lifetime commitment shifted the way that couples thought about their relationship, whether or not it was legal marriage. Hmm. Amazing. Uh, yeah. I'm only talking about this because you went to read. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's great work. That's great work. <laughs> I was not identifying as I wasn't even identifying as bisexual. 
at the time. I wasn't identifying as anywhere queer at the time. And I had a professor ask me, like, why do you want to do this project? (laughs) Like, trying to get me to come out. Mm -hmm. And I was so closeted even to myself that I literally was just like, I just have a lot of loved ones who are gay, which was true. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. I had my first car. I put a rainbow flag on it. And everyone would be like, huh, that's interesting, Sarah. I'm like, yeah. Because gay people are awesome and I love my uncle and I don't understand what's weird about this. Yeah. 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 Just obvious, you know. (laughs) I'm actually curious if you came into sex work in Portland because it is a thriving (laughs) community of sex workers. But I know that sex work has had a real impact on your writing. I'm, I'm just curious how you feel like it impacts the work you do today. I mean, and I guess just generally how you show up in the world. Yeah. Thank you. That's like eight questions in one. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. I did start stripping when I lived in Portland. Unlike most of the people that I met at Reed, I did not have financial support. I had to work a lot and I was just going into debt and working a lot trying to live there. You know, it's a private school where most of the students there have, their parents are just paying for it. And that just wasn't my experience. So I was a nanny and I was doing, I was like doing all of this stuff and my grades were slipping, which was totally unacceptable. To you or your parents? To me, okay. but who knows at that point, right? right? I hadn't quite unpacked my... No, it sounds like you had so much unpacking to do. Like from what you're talking about from your beginnings, I'm fascinated about this transition to a queer sex worker somatic death doula. Please continue. I'm fascinated. Thank you. I'll tell a shorter version. I started stripping. It was easy and fun, even though my very first shift, it was also gross. And that was in Portland. And I was like, oh, this is good for me. This is the best job for me there is because I can make enough money to do what I need to do and work half the hours I was working Mm -hmm, before. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was just very clear. Then I wrote a book with my sister and we weren't, you know, the publisher like threatened to pull it off the shelves if I didn't quit because they couldn't market it if people found out that I was a stripper. This was 1999. So that still was true. Yeah. So I quit, but I, it was, I wasn't done and I knew I wasn't done. And so I went back to dancing a couple of years later and then I started doing all kinds of other forms of sex work once I moved back to LA, but I did get a taste in Portland. What was it that you knew you weren't done? Mm. Like, what was that feeling like? Was it the money, the dancing, the camaraderie, the like, whatever exchange with clients. Yep. Yeah. All of those things made it more attractive to me than almost any other job. And I had a bunch of other jobs. I tried to do regular jobs, Mm -hmm. but I was 21. I was working at the VA. I had graduated and 9-11 had happened and things had gotten very weird. And I just wanted to go back to the strip club. Like I just Mm -hmm. wanted to go back there. That was what I wanted to do. I had a hard time squaring that with all of these visions for myself as an intellectual (laughs) or Mm -hmm. as someone who was destined for grad school or, you know, it was hard at the time for me to understand that both of those things could be true. Yeah. Cause we're we're told that they're opposites and never inter interact. And I wasn't integrated. I felt like I inhabited two very different worlds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something that I like really strikes me about your work is that there is this real cerebral quality to it. And yet you also have all of this body work that you do. And it makes this wholeness that is so kind of vibrant and nuanced. But like, I just kind of imagine that the journey there is complicated. And I guess I wonder if that like is how you came to somatic techniques and practices. Yeah, I was lucky to have a godmother who was very into somatics before it was as common a practice Mm -hmm. in therapy as Mm -hmm. it is now. She's a writer too. Her name is Sark. And she was teaching me tapping before you could Mm. find videos on the internet. She taught me that when I arrived at a new place and I felt destabilized that I could stomp around and tell myself I'm here now and that it would help me get grounded. And it did. 
So she was introducing practices to me when I was like a young teen. And then also I've been a dancer this whole time, sometimes more just dancing in clubs, but sometimes working for a band or, you know, being in a lot of classes. So I've always had some place where my body and how I'm breathing matters. And because I was lucky enough to have someone who is teaching me these things and and I took to them, they, they made sense to me. So later on, I got into a martial art and I got into Qigong and I got into breath work and, you know, I'll kind of try everything. And, um, and I never stopped dancing, right? So there's ways in which I've proven to myself over the years that if I do stop dancing, I become depressed. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I have proven to myself that if I'm not taking care of my body, my movement needs, my touch needs, my nutrition needs, if I'm not taking care of those things, that I can't write, I can't think, mm. I feel awful. And all I want to do is be in a ball watching horrible documentaries about serial killers. <laughs> so mm-hmm. when you find me there, yeah, yeah, you, you, like, you need to get back to the club. <laughs> you're no. like, babe, let's go to Zumba. <laughs> No. Yeah. Yeah. And Is that what you're doing these days? <laughs> Listen, I just went to dance camp in Mexico with my sister and we did Zumba every day for a week and it was amazing. That, that sounds so amazing. I'll do whatever. I'll do whatever. It's, it's like the retired stripper um, health plan. Yes. <laughs> Get your ass out and do some Zumba. Yes. Yes. You need the work. Yeah, that's so great. So you were doing somatic offerings and self-care on Instagram during COVID. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. Sarah, you saw them. Oh, oh my gosh. It was like such a generous offering that you put out there. And also, I feel like I learned a lot. Like, I didn't know that about you, that you are someone that is so connected to your brain. You know, I know you from more of your brainy work. Mm -hmm. So it was really cool to participate in your Instagram live somatic self-care. Thank you so much for coming to those. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Do you have a practice that you particularly love that you'd be open to sharing with listeners? Yes. So somatic self-support techniques range from like simple, small, immediate things you can do at your desk to like take 20 minutes and X, Y, Z, right? So here's a teeny tiny one that I absolutely love. And it's on my Instagram as well. But when I introduce people to this one, it's like, if you think this works for you, like you're going to like the bigger ones too. But this one's teeny tiny. So get your body so that your spine is basically neutral, whatever that means to you. I don't say straight because the spine is not supposed to be straight. Mm -hmm. You just get it so it's kind of neutral. And you imagine that there is a mirror or a plate of glass right up on your face. And you take the tip of your nose and you draw very, very small circles going clockwise. Draw about five. And just breathe gently. You don't have to do anything with your breath. Just make sure you are breathing while you do it. And then draw tiny circles going the other way, going counterclockwise. Draw about five and just keep breathing. Here's what I love about this one. First of all, just taking some breaths, even if they're, you know, nothing special about them. Just concentrating on getting some breaths is important. But this particular movement with the nose relaxes some of the larger muscles in the neck and allows your smaller stabilizer muscles to support you a little bit. There's a bunch of little tiny muscles that we sometimes ignore in favor of using the big ones that hurt. And so it shifts the balance a little bit of who's doing the work in holding your head up. I feel like that was tailored for me personally, (laughs) because I am just starting to get into somatic work. I reached a kind of standstill in therapy where I even had a therapist being like, you seem like you're good. And I'm like, but why? I'm crumbling, you know. And finally, I was it was suggested like you should probably do somatic work at this point. And that's when I started realizing how much dissociating I do, how I've even made like a whole segment of my sexuality kind of around it with role playing, like, Mm. and, and a lot of just really coming out of my body in order to endure the things that I need to do. Yeah, I'm really just shifting everything towards heart led and body kind, kind of 
daily interactions or with my own body or just way of being. But when I was high, high anxiety, I was doing a ton of yoga. Oh, yeah. And it really was helping me. Yeah. Now I'm much better at dealing with my anxiety and, you know, sitting in the room with it and asking it to tea and all that stuff. But I'm having trouble getting back into being in movement again. And I know it would help so much, but I just want to lay and be still all the time, Mm -hmm. kind of. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if I'm kind of a little bit in a freeze or if it's part of my healing. Anyway, I'm like, maybe Vanessa knows. (laughs) 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 But that particular, in particular, I have a lot of neck stuff. So doing that, just taking a moment to slightly move like that really did relax my neck and just made me think of like, part of my embodiment that I'm working on needs to be more movement, but I'm really having trouble like pushing into that space. I hear Whereas that. it used to be so, I just needed yoga before. Right. But my need is a little less now, or I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to interpret those changes when they happen. And I work one-on-one with clients who are, usually they're people who've already done quite a bit of work and they are trying to transition mm-hmm. uh, to sort of an, what, what feels like the next, the next level or the next stage in their healing process or their, or their self-support process or however we want to think about the work we put in. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I do think that, you know, having times where you are physically grieving, even if you're not emotionally grieving, it's important to remember that freeze state is different from grief and it's different from exhaustion due to many years of being adrenalized, um, high intensity, high anxiety. The freeze state is, is actually very uncomfortable and tense and immobilized Mm. in a lot Mm -hmm. of times when we're doing it, it, when we're conscious, if you're unconsciously frozen, like let's say you're actually in a life-threatening moment and you pass out, that's different. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about this sort of like low grade, constant everyday feeling of freeze that people can have. Yeah. That's different from I'm totally exhausted because I have been living in such a state of stress and anxiety that I'm just tapped, right? I think that's what I have. And that's also different from I am reckoning with how hard things have been and I need to rest because as I face how hard things have been, I am overwhelmed by sadness. I'm overwhelmed by anger or I'm overwhelmed just period and I need to lie down. So I think you know, understanding that there's way, there's many different forms of needing to be still and that you Mm -hmm. can't always tell in the moment which one is occurring. Yeah. So we have to be tender with that. And we also have to stay gently challenging, like, okay, Mm -hmm. I've been here for two hours. (laughs) Maybe I walk for five minutes, (laughs) you know, that we, that we introduce like gentle challenges when it feels like I'm concerned about what I'm doing. Yeah. 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 The other thing that comes up for me as you're both talking is this idea that we have about movement. And I think we talked about this recently too, about like pleasure. We we think of it, it's gotta be huge. Mm. Movement. It's gotta right. be extreme. Like you are going up against this idea of a daily yoga practice as right. the kind of mo- movement that is your target goal. When it's like we just did tiny little Mm -hmm. circles with our nose and like Mm -hmm. all of a sudden my head felt like it was floating rather than like bearing down on my neck and my spine and I think that that's kind of how qigong works too I haven't ever Mm -hmm. practiced it but my stepdad did qigong and it is just really subtle movements and it's almost like the decapitalization (laughs) practices or something like start small like that No, I feel that. And I feel it especially for sexual pleasure, because when people who I work with, and this is from the sex worker side of things, where obviously I wasn't discussing a lot of people's emotional lives with them from the same perspective I do, I do as a, like a coach. But as a sex worker, people would be like, I want this big, crazy experience. And I'd be like, okay, you know, like we can do that. And then The next time you see me, then what are you going to want? Right. You know, then what are you going to want? And how do we create something that is wonderful 
and maybe real big for your birthday. (laughs) And and then it integrates into your life in a way that like, maybe the next time you see me, all we do is reminisce about the last time (laughs) and then, you know, and then have a little 10 minute quickie and then we're good, right? Like there's gotta be a lot of different ways in and the Mm -hmm. big ways are wonderful, but you can get addicted to them. And I do actually, I use that word very carefully um, Mm -hmm. because of how much my life has been affected by substance use and addiction. I think you can get dependent and fixated on the next big peak experience. And I see sexual communities doing this, especially kink communities, right? Mm -hmm. Where you know, a lot of times my clients, I'm like, cause I still am a sex worker. And at this point, um, I'm mostly Dom, although I still do some other things, but I tend to tell my clients, look, I am a very back to basics person and you are going to leave your sessions embodied. Mm. You are not going to leave your sessions crazily high, but maybe twice a year. Because from my perspective, what is most transformative and most juicy and opening for us physically are practices that we can integrate that can become part of life. And peak experiences are amazing. We want them. They're lovely. But when they become your fixation, now you're now you're screwed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is true. You're right. I mean, this is, I think, a thing that I focused on in therapy for a a long time after my divorce was like, I'd hit such a low that I was doing a lot of joy seeking that was completely sending me just like spiking and valleying, you know, and my therapist was like, yo, (laughs) like, we got to get this like resilience zone built up because like you're offsetting all the responsibility, all these things that you have to do with these extreme highs. And, you know, I still feel like I'm working through some of that because, you know, you, you create these peak experiences that then become something that you compare against. Oh, I feel like I've made a whole lifestyle out of that my entire adult life and have only recently realized that I've been doing that. So it's it's interesting to get in touch with the everyday and the the small moments. I'm trying. Yeah, I think one of the things that becomes clear to me the more that I do the work that I'm doing is that I misunderstood small for boring or meaningless. Right. Mm-hmm. I yep. misunderstood yep. daily for um, drudgery. <laughs> right. I misunderstood mm-hmm. things this way. And I thought the only way that I could get what I wanted from life was to be, well, first of all, I was high a lot. So right. we'll just say that was to use a lot of drugs and, and great. Like I'm, I don't have any prejudice around use, but, um, I became compulsive in a way that mm-hmm. was very much about just keeping that like bigness going, you know, my life is mm-hmm. bigger than the rest of you. There was definitely <laughs> an ego component there about having a bigger, yeah. better life. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think that once you start getting to those places, when you start pitying people <laughs> mm. who seem mm-hmm. to just work hard and mm-hmm. <laughs> Whatever, (laughs) like be comfortable. (laughs) Um, You know, all of that gets really, to me, all of that is just very like shadow side, dark, like that's all dark. That's all like sort of the darkness within that I, that I've had to, that I've had to just continually work with. Let's not even pretend that's in the past. Like that's, you know, (laughs) but death work is this place, like as a death doula, this is a place where people are in a peak experience. It's not necessarily a pleasure experience, although sometimes very intense and meaningful, connective, um, and even joyful things can come out of end of life time. But not that many experiences in life have a real before and after, like a death. And Mm -hmm. I'm attracted to that, right? I've just said, I like big myths. I like the big stuff. So I'm attracted to these major transitions But the approach I take to those major transitions is completely different. It's about meeting basic needs and, you know, sort of graceful attention to detail and connective loving acts that are sometimes so small 
you know, you can't remember what they were, right? Um, all of those things are, are a completely different approach to these big transitions. So it's not that I think, you know, oh, you got to stay like boring and small. It's like, no, I, I actually think you can have the richness and the meaningfulness and the pleasure and the intensity by staying grounded in the face mm. of what life is actually doing. It's just going to do it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting because I think I had jumped to a place of drawing the connection between your death doula work, sex work, somatic self-support as being about bodily autonomy. Sure. Mm. And you've just described shadow work, Mm. you know, big moments like this is what kind of draws you to your work as a death doula. So I think I've made an assumption that maybe isn't accurate. I want to hear more about, I mean, maybe not exactly how you came to death doula work, if that's not kind of the interesting moment in the story. Mm. Uh, Maybe it's more like what death doula work means to you or what you think that we're sort of missing out on as a culture about the death and dying process that is there's a saying about this like in hardship you can still find the most beautiful truth within it yeah so I I feel like death doula work is very much about that like Mm -hmm. grounding the process in something that makes it a little bit less terrifying yeah the (laughs) phrase I use a lot is you know smoothing the path if possible, because mm. mm. the path is there, right. <laughs> right? The path is there. The dominant culture that we live in is very rocky. If, if you do nothing but what the medical establishment is telling you, yeah. you know, it's going to be a rocky path for everyone. And there's ways to smooth it out a little bit here and there. One of those ways is through just basic death education understanding what are the signs? What what does it mean when somebody who's in their 90s starts withdrawing from their friends and wanting to stay home? You know, mm-hmm. is it, are they depressed? Maybe screen for it, you know, but it's also very likely that they are starting to withdraw and go inward and do the work they need to do to get prepared. Mm. And, you know, hospice workers know a lot about what it looks like at the end of life. And luckily we have more, you know, hospice nurses on TikTok and, you know, you can, you can start to listen to these stories, but in order to really engage with that material, you have to face your own death anxiety. You have to face your own fears about pain, illness, right? And it turns out that a lot of us are very afraid of prolonged illness and pain and less yeah. afraid of death itself because it's so hard to comprehend. Mm-hmm. But bodily autonomy as a part of the process of choosing when and where and how you go out, I mean, mm-hmm. you aren't necessarily going to get to choose that much about it. Yeah. People die of accidents and strange immediate illnesses all the time. And I think one thing that COVID has really taught us is that you don't get to count on a long mm-hmm. life in a world you understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't get to. I'm hoping people are learning that. I helped my mother and my stepfather through their death process. And I was shocked at how little control you have when you're in the hospital. Mm-hmm. When you get to that point where in the hospital, like my stepfather did not want to die in a hospital. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, I had no control over that. Mm-hmm. You know, I it just things, the machine kind of grabs you. Mm-hmm. And I feel very grateful that my mother was able to die at home mm-hmm. with us around her and in her, you know, own bed and everything. And it's just such a, you, you really just don't know whether it's accident or whatever it's going to be. But there's like this machine that kind of gets you and, and it. It was really disheartening for me just how little um, ability we had to control that type of thing, mm-hmm. like the system. Yeah. But I would have loved to have someone like guide us more. The most helpful thing was when hospice came and told me what was going to happen. Exactly. And yeah. and we st- we didn't even know she was dying. And they, they came over and then he pulled me aside and was like, 
okay, we're very close. And Mm. I was like, it's so shocking, especially like, because a lot of times you're dealing with very close loved ones that used to take care of you Mm -hmm. and to guide them through the death process is like really just a, it's a wild ride (laughs) that you you can't get off of, you know? Yeah. 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 And I want to acknowledge that, you know, most death doulas are trained for people who are dying in their old age or people who are Mm -hmm. dying of terminal illness. Those are the, those are kind of the two things that we're really trained for, but there are people and programs and groups that do a lot more support for those of us who are here for deaths by suicide, Mm. deaths by violence the sudden accident or the, or the unexpected that those deaths often, you know, people don't think of them as part of a death process, right? But they are very much, you know, they are very much there. And it's, it's one of the reasons why I often say, I I don't really consider myself to be part of like the death positive movement, although like, love it. Great. I'll do all kinds of positivity, but because so much of the deaths around me and in my communities are due to injustice because there's so Mm. much premature death and death due to negligence and violence. Um, you know, I, I want to support people becoming aware, death-informed, death-educated, mm-hmm. neutral, if possible, about the reality of death, that it is that it is coming for us all, mm-hmm. but also to be empowered toward all of the justice work that still needs to be done in this space. Mm-hmm. And it's why, you know, I, I'll talk about bodily autonomy when it comes to death care, but I'm also not a huge participant in like activism for death with dignity. I have witnessed and and been a death doula for a person who chose their time and date and was able to access death with dignity meds. And it was a profound and important experience. And I'm happy to support clients who that's their choice. And I'm grateful that they can make that choice when they can. Mm -hmm. But the movement happening in a country that does not have universal health care. Yeah. I actually have to fight for that first. In my mind, Mm. as a Mm -hmm. doula, I will be present for whatever someone's choices are. That's my job is just to be there and support and help help smooth the path, like I said. But the but the but the issue of justice around who's dying, when and how, those are questions that everyone should be able to to start thinking more clearly about. But the fear of even thinking or talking about dying is a great hindrance to those conversations. Yeah, I did not know about death doulas until not that long ago. I feel like it was not something that was on my radar, certainly when my stepdad was in his process, which was fairly extended, you know, it would have been, uh, we would have had the opportunity to like access that resource. And I'm wondering what level of involvement a death doula, like where is the crossover with grief work and like the death and dying process? I wish I had a very clear and easy answer for you, but the truth is it's different for every person that I work with or support. I'm happy to do one-off conversations with people who have a couple specific questions. I've also done extended, you know, weeks upon weeks upon weeks of um, visitation and support and and presence. I will follow up with people after a loss, even if the dying person was my main client, I will follow up with the people who were their frontline support. And I say that because sometimes it's family and sometimes it's not right. Mm -hmm. So their innermost circle, their, their frontline people, I will be there um, to check in on, on them. I usually have at least one contact that I'm like, you're going to hear from me in about a month and you don't have to respond. But if you want to, like I'm here to reprocess the experience and see how your grieving is going. Being able to enter grief with the support of a death doula who knows Mm -hmm. what you went through and is checking on your process is a huge gift, especially if there was a prolonged illness and there's a lot of recovery for those who survived. There's a lot of processing and recovery that has to happen. And oftentimes you don't get that time 
before the next thing, right? before either the next death is upon you or the next kid in an emergency room visit or, mm-hmm. right? So the, the, the way that life itself just continues to put intensity in front of you can mm-hmm. mean that making space for grief is very tricky. And people don't always remember that they have to make time and make space for their grief. They think it'll happen, you know, while they're not looking. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's how I definitely have approached all of my grieving process. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just get back to work. Yep. yep. High productivity. That'll work. Oh, I, I'm yeah. sure I'll, I'm sure I'll sweat it out in my sleep, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I'm going to shift gears a little bit because I have noticed that you are ramping up a bit with your self-defense work. Yeah. What else, Vanessa? What else do you do? I know. (laughs) Saving the world. (laughs) Right. I guess I'm wondering if anything that is happening in our world right now might be related to that. Oh, Um, my God. Yeah. Yeah. My mom sent me to, I think it was, I'm, I'm assuming my mom signed me up for the self-defense <laughs> class that I took in high school. I'm pretty sure I didn't seek it out on my own. And it was the late 90s. It just felt like it was like the right, you know, feminist thing to do. Mm-hmm. I did that also. Yeah. I remember beating up the guy in the big suit. Yeah. The red yeah. suit. Yeah. But it was like, it was not only like a physically empowering experience. It also just really made me feel there was, you know, it's an act of reclamation. Mm-hmm. And I have not been drawn to taking a self-defense class since, but recently, particularly with you posting about your classes, I've thought, huh, you know, I think that there actually is something I could really get out of it. Not necessarily because I'm in situations of increased harm Mm. where I feel like my current context of my life requires it, but just because the world at large I might just feel a little bit better with everything mm-hmm. that is, you know, going on. So I'm, I'm just wondering if if you feel like the concentrated attacks that we're living through on healthcare access, reproductive justice, gender affirming care, trans rights, sex worker rights, like all of this, like, is this affecting how you approach these workshops? Is this affecting the experience of people who are attending these workshops? Oh, absolutely. I did not set out originally to have self-defense be such a large part of my offering in the world, honestly. I just wanted to teach sex workers stuff that would help them because I had taken self-defense and it had helped me after being in some violent situations. And I started doing sort of the long path with a martial art. And it was a part of my way that I was addressing my trauma somatically. It's been a huge part of of the work that I've needed to do. And I wanted to just start a like sex worker peer-to-peer support collective. And so seven years ago, a couple of friends and I got together in Kennethon Park and did some techniques and we started calling ourselves the Hooker's Army and the group the group is still around. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yes. And that's what I thought I was doing was like, I'm just going to start a collective and I'm just going to be, you know, I'm just going to work with my community and that's it. And then the more that we did that, it, it just, you know, oh, there's a conference and, you know, it's a it's an adult industry convention and we'd like to have you guys come do uh, some pre-gaming with the models. Oh, smart. Yeah, of course. I'm available for that. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, this is a young group of um, queer students who are doing some projects and they'd really like a self-defense class. And we hear that you're the you're the guy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I go, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, no, I'm totally into that. And here's what's happened is that because my philosophical orientation towards self-defense is a little bit different from mainstream mm-hmm. women's self-defense classes, I am going where I'm asked. Mm. Where you're needed. I actually really love it. It's a it's a beautiful way for me to integrate all of these things, right? It's communication skills. It's somatic self-support. It's conversations about how we protect each other in community. It's all of my politics at once, you know, mm-hmm. in a way that feels really, really good. And it only feels good because it's a safer way to respond to things that feel bad. 
Right. So Mm -hmm. the fact that the burden of self-defense falls on the people who are most likely to be victims of harm is gross. Mm -hmm. I would much prefer to find out that there are lots and lots of wonderful men teaching boundary respecting classes. Word. (laughs) I'd love that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No. Like Like, wash your hands and ask for consent. I want that class. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's not the culture change I'm seeing in large part yet. Although, of course, obviously, there's a lot of people trying to raise um, boys in a very different way. So it's sort of like, look, this situation is shit. And this is the way that I think we can answer some of that. That is not more traumatizing to us. I teach low adrenaline classes. So Mm. people may become adrenalized during the class just because it's there is conversations that are difficult or sometimes we punch a pad and yell only if that group has the energy for it. I'm very, very careful about ratcheting up the adrenaline in the room. I don't believe that training at high adrenaline is the only way to train. And there's a lot of self-defense trainers who really believe you have to train at high adrenaline in order for it to be effective on the street or whatever. Mm -hmm. I just air quoted Mm -hmm. all that because on the street is a euphemism. (sighs) Right. Street-based violence is a huge issue for the Trans Defense Fund. I teach with that group a lot. And street-based violence is a huge issue for people who come to those classes. Street-based violence is not a huge issue when I go teach a group of preschool moms, right? So the concerns, the risks, the context really matter. But for any group that I'm working with, I'm answering a call and the call is coming right now because people are feeling threatened. Because they are. Yeah, they literally are. Yeah, I love I love this somatic approach to everything that you do. There's a real caretaking for people's bodies and and souls and groundedness. Yeah, the groundedness. Like I appreciate it not being an adrenaline pumping kind of situation. Like I feel so alarmed and uncared for in those moments. And I know that we're dealing with situations where you'll be highly uncared for, but I can see how you don't want to feel like dysregulated while you're trying to learn these things. You actually can't learn them as well, right? We have the neuroscience now. The philosophy of training people under pressure It's workable if you're increasing the pressure slowly over time. And that's how the military does it. Mm. But if you're going to train people in a one day, one three hour workshop, you you actually can't scare them out the gate. Right. Because it, it, it shuts down the parts of the brain they need for learning. It's not all empirical because not all, a lot of the information out there about self defense, they can't study it, honestly, because they can't do. Right any kind of clinical trials on things like this. But they do have a lot of anecdotal evidence and they and because of the way we understand trauma so much better now than we did even 10 years ago, there there is a much clearer path forward for people who have lived experience of trauma. And that is slow, repetitive, patterned, rhythmic behaviors. That's how mm. we can get new information into our systems. Mm. So that's how we do it. Robin, we're going to have to go to a class. Yes, 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 yeah, yes. Yeah. I know that there's a class coming up and I'm going to be traveling and I'm bummed, but I I think we got to come and to take go a class. To a class. Yeah, you're welcome. You'd be welcome. I'd love it cuz I, you know, self-defense classes can't prevent right all of the shit. Like that's another thing is people think about them sometimes as violence prevention and I'm like, mm. No. Yeah, let's be careful about our expectations here because the biggest gift I think of the classes for some people is just having their past responses normalized. Right. Yep. And just yep. knowing that if you froze in the past, that that was your body trying to keep you alive. And look, it worked. Here you are. So we're going to stop telling mean stories to the you of the past about how you should have handled it differently. Yeah. And we're going to be grateful because your body did its absolute best. Yeah. And training just opens a little bit of a window for you to make a few more choices. That's the, that's the right. whole goal of training is just to open a little bit of space for you to make some choices about how you want to proceed. So again, there's the there's the autonomy piece. There's the sense of efficacy and agency that I'm always looking for. I mean, my goals for that got much stronger after being a trauma survivor for sure. For sure. Yeah. 
When I imagine being in a group of people that are all looking to connect with people in that way of like, yeah, I also feel threatened. And here we are trying to do something together about it. Is it therapeutic experience too? It's my, I really hope so. And, and that is the feedback that I usually get is that people are, you know, that even, even if they feel like I can't remember any of these techniques, but I, I don't feel bad leaving, yeah. <laughs> you know, like at the, at the, at the lowest, that's the lowest point. <laughs> Most of the right, time right. people are feeling like I had, I got something useful and I feel a little bit better and I connected with some other people or with myself in a new way. That's the, the you know, that's the sweet spot. Oh, Vanessa, you're endlessly fascinating. I want to deep dive into <laughs> every you. single oh. thing. I want to do a sex worker episode. I want to do a death duel episode. <laughs> I want to do self-defense and a somatic. And it's like, so that's, you're the rest of the season, I think. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> but we'll have to keep inviting you back because I want to know details. I feel like I kept stopping myself from going off on huge tangents of just details. I really appreciate this because one thing I've been insecure about in my work for the last few years is how I do a few different things and the spaces that I occupy are different. Like death doula people and self-defense people are different communities of people usually, mm -hmm. right? The writers are different people. The sex people <laughs> are different people, mm -hmm. um, either, either sex work or sex ed. It's, and those aren't always overlapping, right? So these communities that I'm part of that I often feel like I'm an interloper or like I, mm. because I do multiple things, um, that it dilutes what I'm doing or that there's no way I could possibly do them all to excellence. And mm -hmm. I think that's some capitalism stuff, right? Like yep. that's some, it, it turns out that because my orientation towards all of these things is fundamentally about human beings finding ways to connect with each other that are safe and joyful, that if that's my fundamental, then almost all of these things, all, they speak to each other a lot in my mind, right? They're, they're all very much connected, but it's been a, it's been a place where I've felt insecurity and something I've had to really sit with is like, you know, I don't want to tell people that I do this and this and this, because then they're not going to take any of it seriously. Cause I sound, <laughs> cause I sound like a, you know, like a dilettante at all of it. And, oh. you know, I'm, and, and, and it's like, there's nothing I do that I don't study super hard and try really hard. To yeah. Do, right. So it's, it's a thing for me to just accept that, like, nope, I do a couple different things. Well, okay. First of all, your intellect is clearly massive. So I don't doubt that you can master all of these things. And second of all, I think it's what you're saying. You're actually, you are doing the same thing. It's like the many fingers of the same hand. Yeah. That's gross Oh, I like that. Sorry, I could have think of something better. The many tentacles of the same octopus. Like, Is that less gross? I like it. The many, the many branches of the same tree. They're that all, sounds nice. They're all kind of gross, except for the tree. That one's good. The tree. The I like it being gross. like a little bit gross. <laughs> yeah, a little slimy. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and in that vein, I dropped the ball on this in our last episode. I'm going to pull an affirmation oh, for you. Oh, yay. Yes, yes. I hope it's somatic in theme. Okay. <laughs> oh, I, you know, maybe this little cheesy deck is really tapping into something. <laughs> it says, put on your favorite song and dance your ass <gasps> yes! off. Yes! 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 That's two on point. Yeah, that's really good. I can't that's believe really that's good. random. That's amazing. Oh. So where can people find you? What do you have coming up? Mm -hmm. Okay. So you can go to Instagram and uh, look me up at Vanessa Carlisle. I just have my name. And you can also go to VanessaCarlisle.com, which is my website. And that's a good place to contact me. Uh, my Instagram is really where I announce upcoming stuff. Um, there's a lot of somatic self-support techniques on Instagram. That's the place to find what I'm doing. I'm also, I host a radio show called Body Politics, Sex, Love, and Liberation on KPFK. It's on Amazing. first and third Thursdays. People who want support on the things that we're talking about, I'm, I'm here. I've got space for new clients right now. So, Yay, everyone. Fine, Vanessa. Um, that's that's your call to action. Thank you so much, <laughs> Vanessa. This was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for this conversation. It was really affirming. Yeah, good. 
Uh, Sarah, I feel like I have been through a somatic treatment just talking with Vanessa. I was actually having a lot of emotions during Mm -hmm. various parts of the conversation because so much of the stuff that we talked about and the way that they were speaking about it, I was really connecting through a lot of my own experiences and, you know, to be frank, unprocessed emotions around around death, around traumatic experiences, um, I, all the somatic work that I'm doing right now. And oh, I could have talked to them forever about the sex work. Also, I'm dying to know their whole story. I know there's so many different directions we could have gone into yeah. this conversation. I did notice, which I thought was so interesting when you were talking about movement and yoga and wanting to be still. One of the first things that Vanessa said was grief. Yes. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's so interesting. Like struck me. that they were able to tap into that, not knowing your experience really at all. And like how the physical grief might be mm-hmm. setting into your body in a way that maybe you haven't identified. A hundred percent. And they were talking about the thing that exactly happened to me where you just don't have time to grieve. So you just keep moving forward. But the grief is never processed. It's so fascinating. I love the death doula movement that's happening right now. I'm sure there's different levels to it. And I I don't know a ton about it. But I, I just love that there's people that are focusing on helping others with that process, because it feels so out of control when it's happening. Yeah, it's also just amazing to me that there are people out there who have a groundedness around the concept, because As like someone with real control issues, you know, death is kind of that ultimate thing that we do not have control over. And it's Mm -hmm. interesting, like I'm really fearful of aging and just that experience of, I I think it's like, how are we going to survive? Like we don't, there's no safety nets, like all those kinds of things. In fact, the thought of like my body aging, but I'm also like really fearful of people around me dying Mm, and being alone. Yep. I mean, I hope I have a lot of time to work on that, but like, I just imagine having somebody who's going to be a resource when I go through that again, it's been a while since I've had someone really close to me die. It's just yeah. like, oh, that you can, I can just like feel some relaxation set into my body when I think about that. Yeah. Like, oh, those people exist. Uh, if I could have had Vanessa around, they're very soothing. Mm-hmm. Their voice really struck me as I love their voice so much. As being like the perfect balance of super sexy and hot and also reassuring. And but plus super smart as well. Yeah. Like I was struck by their intelligence multiple times where I was like, wow, they really know what yeah. they're talking about. But then the humility that they had at the end about having insecurities about doing too many things. And I'm just sitting here being wowed by them. Yeah. I'm like, really, I'm hoping that I'm on a similar path to what Vanessa has done. I feel like I'm becoming not a jack of all trades, but there are certain things that just make sense for me to do now at this time. And that that work is kind of coming to me on a certain way, because people know that I do that stuff. And that's kind of just feeding itself. And I hope that I could be similar to what Vanessa is doing someday of having these really meaningful things that, you know, they even called it offerings. Yeah. Yeah, They're saying, you know, this is my offering for this and that people are grateful for those offerings. That was something that I was thinking of when we were talking to Vanessa, like they were one of those examples of COVID hit. I just remember being in like such an anxious state Mm -hmm in my mind, but also really in my body. And then here they show up with like, here is this thing, this muscle that I have flexed where I have a lot of knowledge and I'm going to hold this space every Saturday. I think it was like 11 o'clock or something and come and you can learn techniques and we can do them together. Mm -hmm. And it like bridge this gap of, um, feeling like, okay, there is not enough togetherness right now, but 
the practice that they shared, I had completely forgotten about the nose circles. Mm -hmm. It's so simple. Mm -hmm. Um, But there were some others that have stuck with me. And I don't know if this is a somatic technique necessarily, but just like box breathing. Mm -hmm. It's something that I use a lot that I knew about before doing the somatic self-support, but also like it now is more of a practice for me of like breathing in for four seconds, Mm. holding for four seconds, exhaling for four seconds, holding for four seconds. And it's just this really easy way of getting grounded. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what's really cool about somatic practices is it's it is this reminder that Vanessa was saying of just the simple things that you can do. Yeah. 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 And that connection, really getting back into your body, getting into the present, getting out of your head, just taking a moment. It's so important. We get really wrapped up in things that don't matter. And it's kind of the crux of their work between the death doula, the self-defense, the somatic work, all of this stuff, even the sex work. All of this is like basic needs, but they're very deep core heart embodiment Mm -hmm. practices that they're doing. I'm really glad that I I got to meet them. (laughs) Yeah. And I realized in the intro, I didn't mention that if you also love listening to uh, Vanessa, you can find them co-hosting the live radio show, Body Politics, Sex, Love and Liberation on KPFK 90.7. Uh, in Los Angeles area, but I think you can also stream it on kpfk.org. Definitely support their work. So cool. You can find us at Fuck yeah Pod on Instagram and TikTok. You can email us at fyapod at gmail.com and we sure hope that you will. Yeah. podcast is hosted and produced by Sarah Tom Chesson, hashtag my mom, and Robin Jennings. Theme music is by she, her, sir. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would mean a lot if you would rate, review, subscribe, or share with a friend. You can get in touch by emailing us at fyapod at gmail.com or find us online at fuckyapod.com. Thanks for tuning in.